Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, June 11th. We begin with the personal story of a Calgary man who battled COVID-19. We'll hear the details of his journey, including the 25 days he spent in a coma due to the virus. On Wednesday, the province released details of the re-entry plan for the return to schools. We'll speak with a professor who specializes in child and family dynamics on what she thinks should be top of mind before the school bells ring again. Then we take a look at the reopening process and the effects it may have on those who suffer from anxiety. We speak with the director of Anxiety Canada. The filming of the police killing of George Floyd and other incidents of police brutality usually come to light because a civilian recorded it. What are your rights when it comes to filming police? We'll get answers from a media lawyer. And finally, the pandemic has taken a toll on countless annual festivals and events. We'll hear details on how this year's Alberta Métis Fest plans to still bring entertainment to the people virtually. As the province continues to lift restrictions around COVID-19, a father of three speaking up, warning us to still be very careful. Jay Chowdhury spent more than two weeks unconscious on a ventilator in hospital fighting the COVID-19 virus, which also infected his wife and three kids. He joins us now. Hi, Jay. Good morning. Uh, hi, good morning. Thanks so much for being here with us. You know, talk to us a little bit about kind of what happened and, and, and why we need to be careful, why you're, you're continuing to warn us to be vigilant. Right, you know, this happened actually in the beginning of March, and uh, I got this COVID-19 from a super spreader event, and that was a gathering, and I had no clue who was COVID positive in that gathering. Uh, For five days, I will say, let's let's assume that if I got that on a Friday night gathering, uh, everything was normal on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. There was no signs and symptoms, no cough, no shortness of breath, or any kind of thing, you know. And uh, it was really bad after five days, and uh, I, I was sick, so I was taken to hospital. I was told to go to hospital. I walked into the hospital, and uh, then I passed out in the hospital on day one, and then I woke up uh, on 25th day, and I was told that I was on induced coma for 25 days. Wow. Incredible. Like you say, you, you felt fine. And did the event seem like any other event that you were at? I mean, would it just be like a normal gathering within within a community um, or organization that, uh, you know, you might have shared some food or conversation? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Nobody looked sick there. Uh-huh. Nobody was coughing. Uh, nobody had any kind of signs and symptoms that you got sometime, you know, that you're uh, allowed to God. Okay, if you see someone coughing, have sickness, or if you can't breathe properly, you know, these are the signs and symptoms, and you know that guy perhaps he's COVID positive, but there was absolutely no one coughing. No one said that they're sick, and it was just a jolly good show. And Jay, you know, out of that, it was 28 people who were at your gathering, and it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. 34 cases resulted from it, four people in hospital in the ICU, including yourself. One person passed away. When you came to and you were brought out of your induced coma, what did the doctors say to you? Did they, did, were you shocked that, you know, you'd been there as long as you had, and how did you feel coming out of it? Right. So on the 25th day when I was taken out, uh, you know, I, I had no clue that I was actually sleeping for 25 days and uh, i even didn't know that it was that long so i asked the doctor just to confirm that is it true that i was sleeping for 25 days and i had absolutely no sense i was senseless it's a senseless body and he said yes he was an induced coma and they tried at least four times in 25 days to take me out of ventilation and life support but my body was not responding to that but towards the end uh, it was really getting bad and they wanted to do a hemodialysis and send me to another hospital 
But the biggest challenge was that if they take me out of ventilation and then send it to another hospital, I may not live anymore. Mm -hmm. So they changed their plan. But there was a miracle that, you know, I started moving and all the numbers uh, were getting changed and uh, and things were really picking up from there. Uh, but one of the biggest challenge, because it was the beginning beginning of March, even doctors were, you know, not aware what are the side effects, what happens when you do this, what happens of this and that. So on the 25th day, what happened, you know, I, I lost my voice. I couldn't speak at all. You know, I was struggling to talk and nobody even couldn't, uh, you know, get together of what I'm trying to say because I can't talk. And then one of my nerves got damaged on the left leg and I couldn't walk. And these are all the side effects from, from COVID, from ventilation. And then I had to stay another three and a half weeks in the hospital, all in all, 47 days and nights at Peter Lloyd Hospital. And then they gave me a therapy, uh, physiotherapy for three and a half weeks. And then I started walking, but I only walked with a walker. And then I walked with a walker for another two weeks. And then then it was okay. Then I could walk slowly. You mentioned you can, you can walk now. How, how do you feel generally? And what have the doctors said about your health? Do you feel 100%? Doctor said no. Doctor said to be 100%, it will be another six to eight months because of the lungs, you know, need to expand. And it's not an overnight process. I need to do a lot of therapy. I need to walk a lot. I need to breathe a lot. I need to do a lot of exercises. And at least six months, at least six months from now, you know, to, to strengthen my lungs and then get normal. Well, Jay, you are recovering. Your wife, your three kids all had it as well. They're doing better. What's your advice to people as we move forward and reopen our economy? Well, all I say, you know, just be cautious. There are rules and regulations from Alberta Health. Just follow the rules and regulations, and I think that's more than enough. Don't think that, you know, if you're COVID positive, uh, don't feel you should get secluded and not uh, tell people, because sometimes people don't want to say that they feel that they will be mm-hmm. cornered. They feel that people will not talk to them, and that's what is happening in many communities here. Uh, and also, when you're COVID positive, don't think that, just locking up yourself for 14 days, everything is, you know, all right. And it is not because within that 14 day span, many things could happen. So I advise, you know, wear a mask, wash your hand. And definitely I, I see many people in stores, they're not wearing a mask. And also at the same time, we have to understand just wearing a mask will not help because particles don't uh, come only at your nose or mouth. Uh, and sit there. It can sit anywhere in your body, and then you get trans- you can transmit it to others. So just follow the rules and regulation. Maintain the distance, the two meter, two feet distance. Wash your hand and wear a mask. Th- that's more than enough. Jay, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Sue and Andrew. You have a wonderful day. You too. That is Jay Chowdhury, COVID survivor. 609 now, and we uh, got an introductory plan for schools for here in Alberta next year. But one expert says it's crucial to educators to plan for how they'll support vulnerable children and their families psychologically, socially, and academically. Joining us is Delphine Colin-Vesna, Associate Professor, Director of the Centre for Research on Children and Families at McGill University. Good morning, Delphine. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. So are you saying it's not just the reopening of the building and the type of lessons that we need to focus on for the next school year? We need to look at the kids themselves, correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. So when we think about even the summer period, sometimes there are children that are coming back to school and they need a few weeks to readjust because they haven't been doing a lot of intellectual work or they haven't been very much involved in 
their social life for the entire summer. And now we'll have children who have not gone to school for six months. And when we think about young children, six months is kind of a long time. So the children that will come back to schools won't be exactly the same children that they were uh, when they left. They might have bigger needs in terms of emotional needs, in terms of learning, of course, but um, we need to attend to all these needs when they come back and not to focus only on their learning. The learning, the part of it, uh, absolutely, Delphine, but also the socialization. These are kids who perhaps haven't been in group settings, as you mentioned, for six months. Absolutely. And some of them, they were probably very anxious um, even before. Uh, Many children, and that's a very sad um, kind of conclusion, but today, in today's society, many children and youth are pretty anxious. So when we think about the COVID-19 crisis, it may have... Uh, really um, provided them with a situation where the anxiety is just more pronounced. And so they will come back to schools with all this anxiety being very at the top end. And teachers need to be very ready to be in 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 capacity of attending to their emotional needs. Mm-hmm. I, my mind is just going crazy now about thinking all the things that, you, you know, you're referring to fears too about, you know, we wash your hands and, and don't sneeze, Correct. right? So now they're going to be worried about touching things, I would imagine, when they go back to school. Not to mention too, a lot of them may have difficult family lives and home lives and they'll have been spending a whole lot of time in that, those situations before they get back to the classroom. Well, this is what was worrying me the most, is that we know from past uh, experiences, for instance, with um, natural disasters, that children are more likely to experience violence and abuse and maltreatment because parents are overwhelmed. Uh, They might be distressed. They might be relying on very ineffective uh, coping strategies, such as abusing alcohol and drugs. Uh, They can also be lacking their usual social support and resources and um, services that they usually access and help them to thrive and to be the best families they can. So what is really worrisome is that some of these children are now experiencing abuse and maltreatment in their home. And uh, these traumatic experiences uh, may have really detrimental impact on their well-being. Delphine, that's something we may lose sight of. For the average student, it's about, you know, yeah, that uh, camaraderie, socialization, obviously learning and structure that school presents. But for other students, school might be the only consistent, safe place in their lives, even before the pandemic. So uh, the sector of uh, students may have uh, been missing out on that for, for months and months. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I was kind of really trying to push for um, a vision of of schools being like a sanctuary for some children. Mm. This is exactly as you're saying. Uh, For some of these children, this is a safe place. This is where they can build relationship with adults that are compassionate, that are empathetic to them. This is a place where they can be free of violence. This is a place where they can experience success. They can be proud of themselves. They can thrive. And we're removing that very important system. And it might have an impact on all children. But for vulnerable children, this is very devastating. So what can we do as parents? I mean, assuming that we are good parents and our kids are in good shape moving forward. But, you know, is there are there things that we should look for in you know our kids' friends or just when we take our own kids to school, how we talk to them before we drop them off, for example? 
Well, I think it's really just to be mindful that it's been quite a, an experience for everyone, and we need to adjust to the new normal. We've gone through a major stressor, and just as parents to acknowledge that our children might sometimes misbehave or maybe not act in ways that we think are okay, but to have an open space to discuss their feelings and to have an opportunity to have really a real conversation, maybe to normalize, you know, that everyone is going through a lot of stress. This is true for parents. This is true for children. And to give them a space where they can maybe talk about what is stressful, what was stressful about not being in school, what is stressful about thinking going back and what they worry about. Um, and really, it's it's amazing how children are able to voice their worries when we give them an opportunity mm. to do so. This is also an unprecedented time, and I know we use that word a lot, but this pandemic is something we've never experienced. And I know that different parts of the country are at different stages, such as B.C. and even Quebec, as far as reopening. And I think in Quebec, uh, some of the schools have been open for a, for a month now. So we could maybe take and learn from those provinces that have reopened. What have, what have we learned from, you know, for example, limited reopenings in the province of Quebec? Absolutely. So in, in Quebec, outside the... Uh Montreal area, all schools are open now, and it seems to be doing just okay. The only thing is that we're still struggling with social distancing measures. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for young children yeah. to go to recess and not to play together and not to be kind of close to one another. Physical bond is, is the way for children to express their feelings for others. And so I, I think we need to revisit, and especially with some of the new, um, you know, kind of new information we get about how children are not necessarily impacted the same way by the COVID and how they're not necessarily a very strong vector of a transmission. Maybe we need to revisit all these measures so that they can be children the way that they should be and play and be close to their friends. It's going to be an interesting time for sure when we open things up here in Alberta for the next school year. But this, it's going to leave what we've gone through and what the kids have gone through for sure a, a, a mark on all of us, no doubt. So leaving the door open for conversation, I love your point. Thanks for joining us this morning, Delphine. Thank you, Sue and Andrew. It was a pleasure. That's Delphine Colin Vesna. She's Associate Professor, Director of the Centre for Research on Children and Families at McGill University. People are feeling anxious about the changes and the unknowns. So joining us to talk a little bit about anxiety is Executive Director of Anxiety Canada, Judith Law. Hi, Judith. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Can you first off just give us, you know, a brief description of really what anxiety truly is? Okay. Um, Anxiety is the body's, um, it's a body smoke detector. So it, if, if it feels that it is under threat, then the, the smoke detector goes off. Mm. Um, what, we, what we know about anxiety is that it's perfectly normal. We all have anxiety and, uh, and we can also learn to manage it. So you mentioned is, is kind of an alarm system of, to a certain extent. What does it feel like when someone is feeling anxiety? Great question. Um, your heart is racing. Uh, often they are sensations of the body. Um, so your heart's racing. You've, your hands are clammy. Sometimes we're even so anxious that we're we feel nauseous. Um, people um, often talk about you know your thoughts getting mixed up. Right. Mm. You, you're feeling out of control. Um, a lot of what we've we've really been feeling through these last few months. 
under COVID-19 um, is that um, a bit of a, a sense of dread, you know, when you get up in the morning, you're feeling you're uneasy, you're, you're just not sure what's going to come around the corner. Dread, the unknown, absolutely. Who gets anxiety? We all get anxiety. Um, if, if we didn't have anxiety, uh, we'd be dead as a species. Um, one of the most common examples is, say, um, I'm walking down the street. Uh, fortunately, I am able to hear some noise. And so my, you know, my anxiety kicks in. I, I look around and it may be a car that is, you know, driving a lot faster around the corner. And so my anxiety uh, helps me. I will react by stepping out of the way and, you know, stepping out of harm's way. So that's, that's an example of, um, of how anxiety protects us. So I'm, I'm getting that, uh, you know, a lot of this might have to do with the familiar. And when you talk about a pandemic, something we've never been through before, could that be a big part of anxiety uh, going into a situation that you have no experience in? Absolutely. And, and also not just going into it uh, without any experience, but knowing that, um, that until a vaccine is found, um, we're, we're living it. So it is, it's that loss of control and it's all the uncertainty that, um, that is unfolding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that in some provinces you can go out to a restaurant. Um, in very limited provinces right now, kids are uh, optionally returning to school while in others, you know, they can't. Um, where some of us are still working from home, Others have been told that we're going to be working uh, from, from home until further notice because there isn't enough space at the office for physical distancing. Um, yeah, so many changes. Truly. And Judith, you know, in this current situation, what can we do to fight off anxiety? Or should we just let it happen? Do we let it wash over us? How, how does it work? How do we react? We have a lot of information from experts around coping with anxiety. I'll just share that um, if uh, your listeners uh, should have a look at our website at um, anxietycanada.com. We talk a lot about uh, managing anxiety and we don't, um, we can't push away our thoughts. Um, So when we're feeling really vulnerable and uh, under threat, what we can do is to, to practice what's uh, a psychological approach called CBT. So that stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy. So um, some easy things right now would be um, focusing on what we can control. So uh, you can control when you wake up in the morning. You can control what you eat. We can control who we engage with. Um, we may not be able to see them in person, but we can call our clients. We can call our parents. Um, we, we're able to connect so we can still engage. Um, other ways of self-coping are, um, again, about prioritizing what, the small steps. So um, it's making sure, for example, that um, you as a parent, if you're a parent, that you put on that life jacket first. So. Um, you're able to look after yourself, and then because you're managing your anxiety, it's, uh, you're more likely to be able to help those around you. 
Um, Self-care is another one that we talk about quite a bit. And what that means is that this is a new normal and it's evolving. And so you can, you know, it's really important to stop beating yourself up about your, for example, your productivity level. We've heard from a lot of people who've said, you know, they feel guilty. They're not able to, um, to be as productive as they were before COVID. Or they're feeling, you know, really that unease. So the self-compassion, taking time for, to have breaks, uh, finding a pandemic buddy or, or a coping colleague, we call mm-hmm. them, someone like you can talk to. Yeah. yeah and, um, and then also having compassion for others goes a long way. Absolutely. Because we're all in this together. Judith, we have a great text here that says, you know what's sad? A person may not learn the tools to cope with anxiety till later in life. If I had only the coping mechanisms earlier in life, things would have been so much easier. So to that uh, texter's point, how do we recognize anxiety in our children and not just, uh, you know, chalk it up to a, a childhood fear so we can maybe, you know, get them the coping mechanisms early? Yeah, it's a really great um, uh, text because early intervention is so helpful with anxiety. And we know that um, listening to your kids. So right now during COVID-19, one of the things that uh, the parents can do is to have dialogue about what's happening. So not just the, you know, our our fears about uh, when will we find a vaccine? When will this be over? But really having conversations, opening it up to say, hey, this is how I've been feeling. This is how um, it's affecting me and, and very small in, in ways that if it's a young child that they can understand, you know, you don't use big words like pandemic. And then giving them an opportunity to talk about um, what's happening in their bodies, for example, and, and what are, are there things that they're missing. Just opening up the dialogue goes a long way in then supporting your kids with anxiety uh, management strategies. And those are things that you can actually learn. Again, I'll just refer to our website because we have a very comprehensive website. And um, there are also tools like um, the MindShift app. That is also another tool where you can learn calm breathing. So how do you dial down the anxiety in your body? And how do you balance the worries, right? Um, what's realistic? And thoughts are not facts, actually. So that's one of the ways that um, having these conversations, becoming an expert yourself, means that you, just like everything else, like teaching your child how to ride a bike, you can do the same when it comes to mental health. Great advice. And I just jumped on the website and there is so much information on there. Thank you for joining us this morning, Judith. My pleasure. That's Judith Law, Executive Director of Anxiety Canada. And again, the website, anxietycanada.com. 708 on the morning news. What should Canadians know if they see law enforcement using excessive force and want to record exactly what police are doing? We're joined by a media lawyer who serves as a board member of the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, Peter Jacobson. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. How are, how are things in Calgary? It's going to be a nice day today. Looks good, finally. We've got a nice stretch ahead for us. Uh, of course, in the world, we're seeing protests and rallies uh, you don't have to. You have to be under a rock not to know it. Of uh, the uh, filming of the killing of George Floyd and the the police interaction uh, that led to that. Uh, 
what do we need to know as Calgarians, as Canadians, if we whip out our phone and start recording what police are doing? What are our rights and, and what uh, should we know as far as staying within the legal limits? Well, um, your rights are that you are allowed to tape record. You are allowed to record, video record, um, uh, unless uh, what you are doing is somehow going to imperil the safety of, uh, of the police officers or, uh, or other members of the public. And also, if, um, if you have not been asked not to record, you can, of course, go ahead. If you have been asked not to record, then we get into the very difficult situation of um, uh, whether it is safer for the person recording to stop or not. Um, as you know, the police have a great deal of discretionary uh, power um, they're there on the ground, and if they decide to uh, arrest you or to confiscate your phone, then um, that's what's going to happen right then and there. Yes, you would have um, rights later on. You could hire a lawyer. You could go and complain about what's happened. But in the meantime, you may well have spent uh, some time in a cell, and you may well have had your, uh, your phone stolen. So my basic um, advice to people is try to be as cooperative and as polite as possible. Um, but unless the police have told you that uh, uh, they are going to detain you, and you can ask them that, are you detaining me? And if they are not detaining you, they have no right to search you. They have no right to take uh, to confiscate your your phone. If they are detaining you, um, then uh, they have only the right to um, uh, to take what they need to take for safety purposes. So, for example, if they thought you had a knife in your uh, in your backpack, um, and if they had good reason to believe that, then they could search your backpack for safety purposes only. If they decide to arrest you, then they have the ability to uh, uh, do the search and seizure thing if it's if it is deemed to be reasonable. Now, all of what I have just said depends very much on the police officer and the attitude of the police. So, one of the things that you want to do is to be cooperative to the greatest extent possible. No swearing. No getting mad. Try and be cool about it, and um, try and encourage the uh, policeman to be to be fair with you. Um, that will get you a lot further than being um, uh, obstreperous and, and angry. Absolutely, that makes sense. So, Peter, just to be clear, there are two things that would happen if police told you to stop filming. They would have to detain you in order to take your phone. They can't just take your phone and and leave you be on the street in the situation you're in. That is the legal position, yes. Okay. But and potentially... My, my, concern, of course, my concern, of course, is that may not be the practical thing that happens. But um, that is that is your legal position. Of course, you're, you're out there on the street with many other people, perhaps, and, and you don't have lawyers, you don't have a judge, you've got no one making those uh, important decisions for you at that time, so what you have to do is to be is to try and appear to be reasonable and fair. And also, um, when you were filming, you would ask the policeman on camera, um, are you detaining me? Um, that will go a long way to uh, the future uh, steps if you want to take them, because if the policeman says, no, I'm not detaining you, then they, they can't do anything to you. You can, you, you can 
in theory, walk away. Okay. Okay, but just for some clarification, could they detain you for taping, or would they have to have a reason to detain you other than the fact that you're taping if you're not in jeopardy of of, of their work uh, or jeopardizing their work or, or your own personal safety? Legally, they cannot detain you for taping. Okay. Interesting discussion. I mean, we've seen what's happening around the world and, you know, with the George Floyd case in the U.S., it may not have ever come to light what exactly happened had somebody not been standing there taping it. And and it looks like one of the officers did at one point step in and, and try to stop that person from recording the situation. Are the laws different in the U.S. and Canada, Peter? Uh, they are different, but when it, when it comes down to this material issue, they are not different. I mean, the um, uh, the basic issue, the basic question being asked here is: is it uh, is it prohibited to tape the police? Um, and and the answer is, uh, unless they have got good reason for safety reasons. Um, the answer in both countries is no, it is not illegal to, 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 to take the police. In fact, it's one of the, you know, you see the police doing it now. More and more people are talking about the police having uh, cameras themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's to protect everyone to, by having a record of what actually did happen and to take corrective measures afterwards if we see that the, uh, the, the recording shows that the police acted unreasonably. And as far as out, being outside, being in public, just to clarify, uh, you know, from the article, it, it's legal to record anybody in public. So if you're on the street um, and have your phone out, um, you cannot, you know, be brought up on charges. If, if Sue, for example, is walking across the street and I videotaped her walking across the street, my rights are uh, public because I'm on public property. Is that correct? Well, that gets a little more complicated because we have to understand the reason that you are. I mean, if it's, if it's harassing if it's harassing her, if it's um, uh, invade, invading her privacy, um, then there are then there are certainly issues. We've certainly seen um, uh, complaints, uh, particularly by uh, by women of, of men, uh, uh, recording them for for uh, no reason other than they're they're perhaps satisfying their sexual curiosity. So the basic question is. Uh, not so much taping an individual, um, why are you doing it? Um, but certainly if you were to tape record somebody um, uh, just walking down the street, uh, incidentally because you were showing um, you know, how the street had been repaired or whatever, there'd be no problem with that. But it really is not, I don't want to encourage people to go there and start taping their neighbors for no particular reason. Yes, that's probably not the best idea for sure. But if you're in a situation and there are officers involved, you know, in the end, it could protect the officer too. You know, we're assuming the police are doing something bad, but there might be a situation where, you know, somebody else is doing something to the police and you might be able to help them if you're recording the situation as well. So it can work both ways, right? Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, um, <clears throat> the police want to be able to show that there was severe provocation. Mm-hmm. And if you only show the little bit where the police, you know, grab the guy's arm and put it behind his back and uh, um, and you don't show that, that uh, the, the person was acting aggressively, that doesn't protect the police. So you're absolutely right. Filming the whole incident in context is a, a great uh, a great safety measure for both the police and the public. Well, thank you very much for breaking it down. It's good to be informed, Peter. My pleasure.
That is Peter Jacobson, media lawyer who ser- serves as a board member for the Canadian Journalists of Free Expression. 719, and on Saturday, Alberta Métis Fest is going to stream live, connecting viewers from across our province. To tell us more about it, we're joined by the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Audrey, Audrey Poitras. Good morning, Audrey. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's great to join you. I mean, this. I'm assuming this will be the first time you go virtual, and uh, like everybody else this year, is having to kind of pivot and readjust the way they do things. So, talk to us about Métis Fest this year. What we can experience? Yes, this is the first year we will be going virtual, and it's really important to us that we support our citizens during this time in every way we can. And certainly we have so much Métis talent out there, and we've known from past experiences that people have loved the Métis Fest. And so this is a way of promoting our, our culture, promoting our artists, and uh, supporting them during this time. Audrey, I'm just looking at the release as far as the different types of performances, and I'll tell you, it spans so many different art forms. Can you tell us, just get, list a few of them off, because this isn't your average showcase, is it? No, it isn't. You will see certainly uh, Métis jigging, fiddling, singing, uh, spoons, guitar, and of course we're promoting our, our artisans as well. We will be, uh, we will be showcasing uh, their wear, uh, whether that's uh, people that, de- uh, that design clothing or make jewelry or whatever they do. So it's a, it's a complete, or what we want it to be, it's a complete uh, showcase of our, our musicians and our artisans. So how does it work, Audrey? Talk to us about it. It's online, so how can we experience it? Do we need to buy tickets and then we see different uh, different things, or is it sort of all streamed together in one big package? It's all streamed together. You can link on our website, which is albertamatee.com. It's on our Facebook page, which is um, at AB Métis. Uh It'll be on from 11 to 5 on Saturday, a steady uh, stream of music and entertainment for six hours. What's really interesting is that we've seen so many different events and so many different cultural, uh, you know, uh, organizations going online because we have to with COVID-19. And I'd like to think that it's not only you could go in person, which is fine, but the reach is going to be huge. You might have a whole bunch of new audience uh, member eyes on what the Métis culture has to offer. That's true. That's certainly true. And I, I believe that it, it, it will be people from all over, Alberta, mm-hmm. Canada, and, and the world. And it will be, I mean, there's so many, there's at least 30 different acts to watch during that time. So it, I think it's going to be amazing. It's uh, a great way of supporting our citizens during this time. Wonderful. It's albertamaytee.com. Go online, get your tickets, get all the information you need. Thanks for joining us, Audrey. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Sue and Andrew. That's Audrey Poitras, president of the Métis Nation of Alberta.